2: Over two centuries ago, 60,000 men were slaughtered in the Battle of Waterloo. Napoleon Bonaparte's French army was finally defeated by the almighty coalition of troops, led in part by the Duke of Wellington. I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast. And in this episode from the archives, an old friend of the podcast, Zach White, is back to tell us about his project, Voices of the Battlefield, an oral history project featuring 41 readings of eyewitness testimony from the campaign. Zach and Dan discuss the battle and hear accounts ranging from a 10-year-old triangle player remembering the chaos of the battlefield to Wellington's own remorse at the horrific bloodshed. I know you're going to find this one truly fascinating. Enjoy.
3: Zach, thank you very much for coming on the podcast.
4: It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me.
3: June 2015, it all began with the first ever history hit podcast of the Battle of Waterloo so it's really good to be discussing it again but with a bit of a difference you've picked out some primary sources some oral history and it'd be good to hear those and then discuss them battle of waterloo june 1815 napoleon's final battle thought to be one of the most decisive battles in history explain to me briefly what napoleon was hoping to achieve by engaging with the allied army at waterloo just south of brussels
4: Well, Waterloo is quite an odd battle in the sense that it should never really have happened, because in 1814, Napoleon had been beaten by the Sixth Coalition, had been exiled to the island of Elba, but very quickly got bored. And as the Allies started to squabble amongst themselves, as they no longer had that kind of unifying purpose of fighting Napoleon, Napoleon saw his opportunity, really, to come back. He knew that the Bourbon monarchy, which had been restored on the French throne, was deeply unpopular. And he he saw an opportunity to sort of divide and rule his opponents. And so he returned in March 1815. The army flocked to him, although there's a lot of debate about whether or not the civilians really wanted him to return. And with Napoleon back on the throne, the coalition allies had a unifying purpose again. And they unilaterally agreed that they would not conclude a separate peace with Napoleon until he had been comprehensively defeated. Which left Napoleon with a problem because he knew that he couldn't beat off the forces of Austria, Prussia, Britain and Russia. And so he had to find a way to right the balance back in his favour. And the best way to do that was to strike at two armies which were based in Belgium. An Anglo-Dutch force under Wellington and a Prussian force under Blücher. Which he did in this really daring move on the 15th of June where he launched his army down a gap between the Anglo-Dutch army and the Prussian army, because he looked at their lines of communication and realised that they ran in opposite directions to one another. And because of that, he intended to use his army as a a battering ram, sort of to try and smash through two gates and force these two armies to swing backwards away from each other so that he could defeat each one in turn. And it very nearly worked. On the 16th of June, there are two uh, twin battles in effect at Catrebra, which is Wellington's battle, and Ligny, which is Blücher's battle against Napoleon. And Napoleon won at Ligny, but didn't manage to crush the Prussians as he'd intended. And because of that, Wellington was able to pull back towards Waterloo, the Prussians under Blücher had pulled back towards Wavre, and Wellington and Blücher had an agreement that if Wellington stood and fought at Waterloo, the Prussians would march to his aid. And so Wellington stood and fought, and it turned into a really horrendous bloodbath. In a very confined area that's barely three miles wide and a mile between the Anglo-Dutch and French positions. It's estimated that anywhere between forty and sixty thousand men died, and the estimates on numbers are just crazy in terms of disparities. It was a really drawn out affair. Wellington described it as the closest run thing that he ever saw. It started with an artillery barrage on the British position that began at eleven thirty. There's a very well-known, almost siege confined within the right flank of the Allied position of Hougomont, a farm chateau, where the Dutch force, alongside the British guards, defended this vital forward position against relentless attack all day. About one o'clock, Napoleon launched what was meant to be his main sort of hammer blow on the Allied centre, sending forward an entire corps under Derlon, about 12,000 men, to just smash their way through the Anglo-Dutch lines, and it came very close to working.
3: Zach, I want to stop you there, because I can see you've got these wonderful oral accounts, and there's one that actually refers to Derland's attack. So let's go through the battle now. You've given us the background. Let's go through looking at these accounts. You want to start with the one from Eamon O'Keefe from Merton College, Oxford, is reading an account by John Scott, who was a triangle player in the Black Watch. Quickly, tell me what a triangle player is, and also just tell people about the regiment that is the Black Watch.
4: The Black Watch is an iconic Scottish unit, has a brilliant pedigree of holding its own and was a really trusted unit from Wellington. A triangle player was exactly what it sounds, a musician. This lad was only about 11 or 12 at the time and his role was to play the triangle within the regimental band. And a lot of bandsmen were, as Eamon's work has shown, actually used not to play music during battles to try and drown out the cries of wounded, but instead were there to act as stretcher-bearers, to carry the wounded away. But this 11-year-old clearly couldn't carry anyone away, so he was just sort of left to his own devices over the course of the battle.
3: Right, let's hear from him now. I was brought up
5: in the army, and was in Belgium in June 1815. What I had to do was play the triangle. I was in the black watch, but my arms weren't much, just a pistol and a small sword. Quatre Bras was a good deal worse than Waterloo, in my opinion. My father spoke Gallic as well as English, and a lot of the Black Watch spoke Gallic. But Wellington said he would not have it, for by the living God he would have every man speak English. After the Battle of Quatre Bras, we got a rest, and then we had to march to Waterloo. About 11 o'clock on the night of the 17th of June, it commenced to rain heavily. The rain poured as hard as it could, and what a night that was. It was in a potato field we were in, but I wrapped my cloak around me and got a good sleep. I remember I lay just on the side of a little bank, and the water was running down on both sides of me, while in the morning there were two inches of mud around us. At daylight we were up, and each of us got a glass of rum and a ship's biscuit. As for the battle, I remember very little. It was nothing but fighting and excitement. All day long the fighting went on, but the smoke hung so thick around us that we could see little. There was nothing but firing and shouting on all sides. I was not frightened. I was too excited for anything. I played my triangle and shouted Scotland forever till I was hoarse and could scarcely speak a word. I never got a scratch. But I think it must have been my height that saved me. I was so little that I had not
3: much risk to run. So there we go. That was Eamon O'Keefe from Merton College Reading, John Scott's words. Interesting to remind ourselves. Well, first of all, it was an allied army. So there's lots of German units, Dutch, we'd now call Belgian. But even within the British army, there was a huge preponderance of Irish and Scottish troops, weren't there?
4: There absolutely were. A chap called Jim Deary at Maynooth University in Ireland has been doing some brilliant work on this. And he's found that even within the regiments that were named as English regiments, there were about a third of troops who were recruited from Ireland. So in many respects, there's this huge Irish contingent. And it's really interesting to hear the extract pick up on the use of Gaelic, which was obviously a a language of Ireland, but also a language of Scotland. And that kind of attempt to suppress that. And it's really interesting how that reflects how Waterloo is used later on to kind of forge this British identity around the fact that soldiers from all four nations within the United Kingdom had fought and served a distinction in the Napoleonic Wars. And there's a lot of mutual respect between English, Scottish, Welsh and Irish troops about the fact that they can
3: completely depend on one another to fight as hard as they need to do. Also, he mentions the conditions the night before the battle. I mean, it was famously miserable, wasn't it? And one of the reasons Napoleon lost was because of the thick mud, so he couldn't get his guns in order. But it sounds, in fact, a grim couple of days in the lead up to battle.
4: It was a really grim night. And it's interesting what you say about the mud, because that's one of the things that I've been asking people as part of this Waterloo Remembered programme that I've put together about the role that the mud did or didn't play. And there's a, there's a lot of debate about whether or not the ground could have dried out any more within that couple of hours. Because for those who haven't been to the battlefield itself, the ground is clay. And so it just retains the moisture. And if it's rained the night before and you go walking on the battlefield, you find it just cakes to your shoes, regardless of what time of the day. So it's a really interesting point that you raised there about that debate on the mud, but the conditions were awful. John Scott seems to be one of the lucky ones in that he got some food. And when you read a lot of accounts from the British troops during this period, Actually, what they do the night before is they go in search of plunder and they plunder the locals of food and so on to be able to eat the night before the battle and the officers just turn a blind eye to it because they know their men have got to eat to have the strength to fight the next day.
3: Extraordinary, isn't it? Some units suffer casualties that wouldn't have been out of place in the wars a hundred years later. So a firepower revolution was taking place. It was incredibly dangerous to be on the battlefield and yet there's still a kid playing a triangle in the middle of the whole thing. Such an interesting contrast
4: kind of funny because it's so ridiculous to me in the middle of all of this carnage and the extract really brings together how disorientating it was with all of the smoke from the musket fire the screams of the wounded you've got this little 11 or 12 year old who's banging his triangle as hard as he can just squealing scotland forever at the top of his voice you must wonder what the soldiers thought about this little one in their midst putting himself in danger completely pointlessly And whether they just kind of were too busy to worry about him or whether he was actually helping in his
3: own way by boosting their morale. Can we talk about Nick Lipscomb's now, his reading of Thomas Creevey's recollection? Because I want to talk about Wellington before the battle. Can we have a listen to that?
6: Absolutely. Will you let me ask you, Duke, what you think you will make of it? He stopped and said in the most natural manner, by God... I think Blucher and myself can do the thing. Do you calculate? I asked. Upon any desertion in Bonaparte's army, not upon a man, he said, from the colonel to the private in a regiment, both inclusive. We may pick up a marshal or two, perhaps, but not worth a damn. What do you reckon? I asked. Upon any support from the French King's troops at a lost. This is the French King Louis the Eighteenth, of course who, in fact, was with his guard some fifteen miles west of Brussels. Oh, said Wellington, don't mention such fellows. No, I think Blucher and I can do the business. And then, seeing a private soldier of one of our infantry regiments enter the park, gaping at the statues and images, there, he said, pointing at the soldier, it all depends on that article whether we do the business or not. Give me enough of it. And I am sure. Well, that was Thomas
4: Creevy. What was he doing near the Battle of Waterloo? Well, Creevy was a Whig politician and he went to Brussels because of the ill health of his wife. And so it was kind of by chance that he found himself in Brussels. They'd gone there for a change of air. And Napoleon's return meant that suddenly Brussels was a much more dangerous place to be than it had previously been. But they stayed over the course of the build-up of the troops in Belgium prior to Waterloo and he met Wellington on two occasions, immediately before, well shortly before the battle and then immediately afterwards. It's a fantastic quote that Nick reads the whole extract in full in the Waterloo Remembered Voices from the Battlefield series. This quote shows so much about Wellington's mindset because it's a bit of a political dig in the section immediately before what we've just heard and it also says so much about his belief in the British troops that Come what may, if he's got enough of them, he absolutely knows that he could defeat Napoleon.
3: He is rude, though, about the other nations. I mean, this is a coalition army. And actually, Waterloo, the Dutch troops at Waterloo, often overlooked, play an extraordinarily important role throughout the battle, and particularly at the end, don't they, with the advance of the Imperial Guard?
4: They absolutely do. What people often miss is the fact that Waterloo isn't Britain versus France. I was speaking to a member of the Waterloo Uncovered team, an army veteran called Ben Mead, who likened the Allied victory at Waterloo to being a sort of 19th century version of NATO in the sense that, as you say, it's a coalition victory. And Wellington's army is only made up of a third of British troops. A third of the force is British. And the rest, as you say, are Dutch, Belgian, some King's German Legion troops in there, and some Brunswickers. They play a really crucial role. And I think, in a sense, it says a lot about what Wellington believed the men could really do when it came to it. That he placed King's German Legion troops in Le Haye Sainte, one of the really important forward positions just in front of the Allied Centre. And there were also Dutch troops fighting alongside the British Guard at Hougoumont So for all that he was rude about other nations' troops at times, when it really came down to it, he must have known that they would stand and fight and do the job because he wouldn't have put them in some of the most crucial positions of the entire battle.
2: Your daily reality is the fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head.
7: Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday. But instead, you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein.
1: All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at us, at the hotel. And I've never seen anything like it in my life.
7: Imagine being used as a human shield, put in the line of fire.
8: We're in trouble. We are under attack. Do not leave where you are.
7: That man has been shot. He has been shot. My God. Listen to the secret history of Flight 149 to hear the shocking story behind one of the biggest cover-ups in modern history.
1: We know the truth. We know what actually happened. I was there.
7: Subscribe
0: now. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
3: go back now because let's get the fighting underway we've heard from the triangle player we've heard from we john scott let's hear from uh, jacques francois martin who takes part in the first big infantry assault kind of quite a blunt instrument really just a massive infantry assault on the allied left sort of wing of the, the allied line i suppose you'd say we've got andrew field here historian specializing on the french perspective so he's reading about jean francois martin can you set this one up for us
4: yeah so this is that initial hammer blow it's meant to be Napoleon's main attack actually, it's meant to end the whole battle in one decisive move and he sends an entire corps under Derlon somewhere in the region of 12,000 men, in this vast column, effectively we call it a column but in effect it's a sort of a rectangle that's just used to smash its way forward by being able to soak up the punishment of artillery fire and musket fire and keep on coming and that kind of unnerving effect is meant and in many cases is very successful at just pushing back whatever stands in its way it sort of got this irresistible momentum to it it had never worked interestingly against british troops over the course of the peninsula war between 1808 and 1814 but it had worked across europe and so napoleon tried it again i have to say it came very close to winning When you read the accounts, it's very clear that the Anglo-Dutch army in the centre was starting to shake. It was starting to pull back in the
3: face of this onslaught. Picton was killed, wasn't he? The local, the man on the spot, the commander of the troops on the spot was killed.
4: He was. One of Wellington's most trusted commanders had served with him all the way through the Peninsular War. Quite a controversial figure, not necessarily a particularly nice person to know, but an utterly dependable commander. Quite impetuous at times. But somebody that Wellington completely trusted, and he was very pleased to have Picton him with him at Waterloo. And as the Allied centre begins to buckle, there's a very famous incident the charge of the Household and Union heavy cavalry brigades. The vast majority of the Allied heavy cavalry just sweeps in at the absolute perfect moment because this French column has just crossed through a hedge. They're, they've been shaken. They're slightly unsettled by the fact that they're out of formation. And just as they're trying to reform for that final push, in sweep, the British heavy cavalry from all sides and they shattered the entire corps. It just takes that entire unit out of the battle for hours.
3: One of the best uses of cavalry in British history, but quickly tipped over into one of the worst. Let's hear from Jacques-Francois Martin. We
7: were in column at the moment the order arrived to climb the position and to seize, with the bayonet, the English batteries and anything else that offered resistance. The ridgeline bristled with their cannon and was covered with their troops. It appeared impregnable. No matter, the order had arrived, the charge was beaten, the shout of Vive l'Empere came from every mouth, and we marched ahead in close ranks, aligned as if on a parade. I can attest to the fact that at this critical moment I did not see a single cowardly thought painted on the faces of our soldiers. The same ardour, the same gaiety shone there as before. However, the shot had already killed many and this promised that the carnage would be terrible when we arrived on their guns. Death crept upon us from every side. Entire ranks disappeared under the K shot, but nothing could stop our march. It continued with the same order as before, with the same precision. The dead were immediately replaced by those who followed. The ranks, although becoming thinner, remained in good order. Finally, we arrived on the height. Now we could reap the reward of such bravery. Already the English began to give way. Already their guns retired at the gallop. A hollow road, lined with hedges, was the only obstacle which still separated us from them. Our soldiers did not wait for the order to cross it. They rushed over it, jumped over the hedges, and broke ranks to run on against the enemy. Fatal carelessness. We were forced to get them back into order. We held them back in order to rally them. At the moment that I succeeded in pushing one of them back into the ranks, I saw him fall at my feet from a sabre blow. I turned round quickly. The English cavalry had charged us from every direction and we were cut to pieces. I only had time to force myself into the crowd to avoid the same fate.
3: So that was Andrew Phil reading Jacques-François Martin, his account describing that big attack in the early afternoon. Pretty extraordinary account, that one, isn't it?
4: It's incredibly vivid. And I think it's a really good way to start to reflect on the human toll. Because that's what's so fantastic about studying the Napoleonic Wars, that you've got so many very honest quite moving and touching eyewitness accounts from Waterloo, but from the entire conflict due to increases of literacy and so on during this period. And this gives us a really clear sense of the raw fear that must have gone through that entire unit as they saw what was coming at them and just knew that there was nothing they could do. And it says so much about their reaction that Jacques Francois's only defence in this situation is to just throw himself into the desperate huddle and hope that he doesn't get hit by a sabre blow.
3: And then the British cavalry overreach. They charge off towards the French guns and they in turn are counterattacked, and it's a bit of a disaster for the British cavalry. In the end, there. the battle moves on. It starts to focus, as you mentioned earlier on, over on the western flank of the ally of the battlefield, but also another big solid sort of farmhouse building, La Hays-Saint, right in the middle, like A give huge anchor for the allied army. And we've got another reading from Haley Stewart here from the University of North Texas. She's got Major George Bering, the famous major who was serving with the King's German Legion. Who was Bering and who were the King's German Legion?
4: Bering was um, one of the more senior commanders within La Haison on the day. This is a beautiful account that we're about to hear. And the King's German Legion has a really interesting history that I explored with Hayley in a specific interview on the KGL and, and their role within Waterloo. They were raised in Hanover When Napoleon moved into Hanover, and people didn't want to be kind of drawn into Napoleon's armies, they wanted to serve with the British. They're another unit that has this really dependable reputation. Admittedly, that unit became kind of watered down as they weren't able to source new recruits from Hanover, and so they had to make up the numbers with deserters in some cases from the French army. But nonetheless, Another unit that could be utterly trusted to hold the line and has a great reputation and was really respected by the British troops, which is quite rare, because quite often the British rank and file were quite scathing about other nations, particularly the Spanish and sometimes the Portuguese.
3: Let's hear from Haley now.
0: Many of the men, although covered with wounds, could not be brought to retire. So long as our officers fight and we can stand, was their constant reply, we will not stir from the spot. It would be injustice to a skirmisher named Frederick Lindau if I did not mention him. Bleeding from two wounds in the head and carrying in his pocket a considerable bag of gold he had taken from an enemy officer, he stood at the small back barn door and from thence defended the main entrance in his front. I told him to go back as the cloth about his head was not sufficient to stop the strong flow of blood. He, however, as regardless of his wounds as of his gold, answered, he would be a scoundrel that deserted you, so long as his head is on his shoulders.
3: That was Haley Stewart from the University of North Texas reading out Major George Baring's account. The steadfastness of the rank and file he really comes through there And La hedges was a brutal fight that went on all day and swung both ways. Wellington was very rude about his own troops. They were the scum of the earth, he said, and they were drawn from the lowest socioeconomic groups in late 18th, 19th century Britain and Ireland. Why did they fight, and in this case, you know, Germans, you know, probably fairly tenuous connection to, by this stage, the British King. Why did they fight so hard at Waterloo? I mean, it's just ferocious.
4: They absolutely do. I think it says so much about the KGL, particularly at La Haison, that the reason that the farm falls is actually because they run out of ammunition. They can't get the ammunition for their guns, partly because the farm ends up being sort of slightly cut off. And they don't pull out when they've got a couple of rounds left. They wait until they've fired every last shot, and they fight their way out with bayonets, which says so much about their tenacity. In terms of why do they fight, this is another really big, fascinating topic, and something that I've been interested in for years, and I think it comes down to a few things. One is camaraderie between their comrades, that actually, as a unit, and particularly as a mess, they trust one another to keep fighting, because they know that their collective survival depends on everybody doing their bit. In terms of loyalty, there's certainly a degree of loyalty to the unit and the unit's history. Personally, I don't really believe that there was any devotion to king and country. I know a lot is made of that. But during this period, the idea of these men, without any real rights, being invested in some kind of political system, there isn't really any sense that, from what I've read at least, that they fight for their king. They fight for each other and they fight for the reputation of their unit.
3: Well, we see the sort of climax to the battle arriving after La Hesson falls. Napoleon launches his imperial guard up the hill. They are greeted by a barrage of musketry from the British guards and some Dutch troops, and they break, and the battle is over. The French army retreats in chaos. Let's hear again from Nick Lipscomb, who's a historian, reading Thomas Creevy's recollections. Creevy, if you remember, was the Whig Politicians Act. He's been telling us about it he was in Brussels. And this is when he talks about what he thinks Wellington was thinking after the battle.
6: The first thing I did, of course, was to put out my hand and congratulate him upon his victory. He made a variety of observations in his short, natural, blunt way, but with the greatest gravity all the time, and without the least approach to anything like triumph or joy. It has been a damned serious business, he said. Blucher and I have lost 30,000 men. It has been a damn nice thing. The nearest run thing you ever saw in your life. Blucher lost 14,000 on Friday night and got so damnably licked I could not find him on Saturday morning, so I was obliged to fall back to keep up my communications with him. Then, as he walked about, he praised greatly those guards who kept the farm meaning Hugomont, of course, against the repeated attacks of the French, and then he praised all our troops, uttering repeated expressions of astonishment at our men's courage. He repeated so often, It's being so nice a thing, so nearly run a thing, that I asked him if the French had fought better than he had ever seen them do before. No, he said, they've always fought the same, since I first saw them at Vimera. Then he said, by God, I don't think it would have done if I had not been there.
3: So, Zach, Wellington was quite sombre, not just from this creepy account. We know from his other writing and the other things he said, you know, he was not euphoric after that victory, was he?
4: Not at all. Wellington was really deeply affected by Waterloo, but I think he also was deeply affected on other occasions when... Had been these absolute bloodbath style battles. After the Siege of Baderhof in 1812, which was a really horrific assault on some really well defended breaches into the city, it's estimated about 4,000 men were killed in a really confined space. He walked the breaches and was found weeping by Picton, who we mentioned earlier. And Picton had no clue what the matter was with Wellington. He turns around and says, What's wrong with you? And Wellington Realised that he couldn't actually explain the situation to Picton because he didn't get it. But essentially he was crying because he'd seen so many of his men killed. And for all that Wellington was very rude about his men, calling them the scum of the earth, as you say, and did so on multiple occasions, he certainly didn't like them. He recognised their dependability and he was never one to waste his men's lives. And I think that comes across particularly in this account from Creevy, where he could see the devastation that had been caused to his army and knew that that victory had been bought with their blood. And I think it also affected him a lot that his staff officers, the vast majority of his staff officers, were killed in the battle. So the people that he had the closest relationship with were also killed. And there's a very moving letter that he wrote to Lord Aberdeen, informing him of the death of his brother, Alexander Gordon, who had been a senior member of Wellington's staff, that is just this outpouring of emotion that really reflects that what Creavy saw wasn't a one-off. Wellington was deeply moved, deeply shaken by what had happened at Waterloo.
3: In fact, you mentioned that letter. I think you've got Karen Robson, head of the Special Collections Department at Southampton University, the home of the Wellington Papers. What a great university, my local university, obviously. I'm biased. Let's get her reading out Wellington's letter to Lord Aberdeen, informing of the death of his brother, Alexander Gordon.
1: You will readily give credit to the existence of the extreme grief with which I announce to you the death of your gallant brother in consequence of a wound received in our great battle of yesterday. He had served me most zealously and usefully for many years and on many trying occasions. But he had never rendered himself more useful and had never distinguished himself more than in our late actions, he received the wound which occasioned his death when rallying one of Brunswick's battalions, which was shaking a little, and he lived long enough to be informed by my, myself of the glorious results of our actions, to which his, he had so much contributed by his active and zealous assistance. I cannot express to you the regret and sorrow with which I look round me. And I contemplate the loss which I have sustained, particularly in your brother. The glory resulting from such actions so dearly bought is no consolation to me.
3: Well, that was Karen Robson at Southampton University. I never quite know Wellington, no whether he's grieving... He says how awful it is, war's such a terrible thing, and then refers to this kind of little aristocratic cadre of friends that have been killed. I never quite know whether he's also referring to the serried ranks of corpses drawn from across the Allied army as well. What do you think about that?
4: I have exactly the same question about it, because in one sense, he's writing to Lord Aberdeen about the death of his brother, and so he would kind of focus on his closest friends and relations. But I think with Wellington there was always a sense that he didn't like to lose men unnecessarily. And a lot of the point about Waterloo is that he sat on the defensive waiting for the Prussians to arrive. And the reason that the entire French army collapses after the failure of the Imperial Guard assault is because the Prussians came crashing in on the French right flank at roughly the same moment. There'd been vicious fighting around Plance Noire for a lot of the afternoon, and it all kind of comes together. This is speculation, but I do wonder if Wellington disliked the fact that he just had to sit there and wait and soak up the punishment and knew there was nothing he could do until the Prussians arrived and until the balance tipped in his favour. But yeah, it's a really interesting point that you make about how it's not clear quite who he's mourning. But although he was definitely mourning the loss of his close friends, I think he also mourned the loss of so many of his army as well.
3: Yeah, I know I've done a classic British mistake there of forgetting to mention the Prussians. Guilty as charged... No, Wellington's famous quote, isn't it? Nothing except a battle lost can be half so melancholy as a battle won. Unlike Napoleon, who marched around the field of Austerlitz with a big grin on his face. Let's find out now, I mean I think you also forget the feeling in Brussels, the civilians in Brussels, because Napoleon's army didn't have a fantastic reputation when they marched into a hostile town and city. Let's go with Christine Hughes Patrone. She is a historian and She's got Thomas Healy's account of panic among the civilians of Brussels. Of course, they were hearing rumours all day, weren't they? Let's hear from her now.
8: The fleeing hussars were closely followed by a group of mounted women. They were well-mounted, riding astride on men's saddles. They had on boots and trousers like dragoons and wore a gown overall with small round bonnets on their heads. They rode well for their horses' feet made the fire fly out of the pavement. I never shall forget them, for they galloped on straight forward, and if the devil had been in the way, they would have went over him. Fancy the quantity of baggage that follows a regiment of soldiers in England, say 600 or 700 men, and then fancy the baggage, hospital wagons, ammunition carts and wagons, Officers, baggage, animals, etc., etc., belonging to an army of 70,000 men, besides the roads full of soldiers advancing and wounded leaving the field, every road leading to the field crammed up with all the above requisites of the army. And then, all in a moment, the word comes like wildfire, crying, the British are beaten, retreat, retreat. The whole of this mass wheels round immediately and begins to gallop, but of course cannot proceed. For at about every 30 or 40 yards, a concussion takes place. And there they all are down together. At one spot on the road, above 20 horses were killed. And of course, the men shared the same fate.
3: Right, that was Christine Hugh-Trenet, a historian specialising in these primary accounts of Waterloo. I mean, it's one thing to be on the battlefield, but it wasn't much better to be 20 miles to the north or whatever it was, 15 miles to the north in Brussels, because you would have been very vulnerable to what was going on down south and unable to do anything about it.
4: You know, in some ways, I wonder if, although it's not as bad as being there and risking your life from all the flying bullets and cannonballs and so on, in a way, it's sort of worse because not only is there nothing you can do about it, but you're hearing all of these rumours. And there's a really famous incident that, causes panic amongst the population, partly because Brussels has a significant British expat community, and they didn't particularly want to be caught up in Napoleon's troops sweeping into Brussels. But there was genuine panic when some hussars from the Duke of Cumberland's regiment fled from the battle, and they streamed into the city claiming that the French were on their heels and actually it was a load of rubbish and people have been quite harsh about that unit but actually it's more like a yeomanry unit they're sort of volunteers they probably shouldn't have been anywhere near the battle anyway they weren't really up to the task but it causes this huge panic and people's kind of streaming into the streets and causes absolute chaos as people try and get away because they are fearful of the consequences of this victorious French army.
3: Terrifying stuff. Well, thank you so much for that. That's a wonderful collect. I hadn't heard of some of those before, so thank you for bringing those to my attention, everyone not listening. Where can people get to grips with this project and hear more of these sources? Sure. So it's part of a big
4: fortnight-long project called Waterly Remembered, which is being hosted on a podcast that I run called The Napoleonicist. There's no competition for history here, of course, so don't worry. And it came out of the fact that we can't come together to commemorate Waterloo like we normally would because of the coronavirus situation and so across 14 days I've got interviews with a large number of experts from across the world 10 in total talking about all aspects of the battle things from the legacy of Waterloo to things like Waterloo Uncover which is this brilliant project that a charity that seeks to provide rehabilitation for armed forces veterans carrying out archaeological digs on the battlefield itself and a range of other things. I've also particularly emphasised the forgotten role of Prussians, King's German legions, and so on. So quite a a big mix in there. But I really wanted to emphasise the human element within this project, because for me, it's always been about the human toll of war, whether it's on civilians or on soldiers. And so I put out a call initially on social media, asking for people to read extracts from this period that really resonated with them, thinking I'd get, I don't know, 15. And in the end, 41 people responded. So we've got one for every five years since the Waterloo battle. That's going to air from the 15th to the 18th. The programme as a whole kicks off on the 5th of June. There'll also be live tweets via my Twitter account at History. But the really great thing about this is that the Waterloo Association have said that they will support the project by live streaming a memorial service at 11 o'clock on the 18th via their youtube page so all you need to do is search waterloo association on youtube and that service will start at 11 o'clock and then as part of that at the end we're asking people to just hold a one minute silence at 11:30, which is the moment that the battle began with that great opening of the artillery barrage on the anglo-dutch lines but i'm also quite keen for people to get involved themselves because this should be an interactive process remember it isn't just about people telling you what you need to remember it should be about people sharing their own thoughts. So there is a room in the forum of my website, the NapoleonicWars.net, that has the full schedule across the 14 days, the 5th of June all the way through to the 18th, where they can find all of the details, but also crucially ask their questions, discuss points that are raised in the interviews and share their thoughts on why Waterloo matters, share perhaps photos of their experiences of visiting the battlefield. If they have veterans grave from Waterloo nearby, perhaps they can go and visit that grave obviously taking care to socially distance in the process and share those thoughts whether it's through the forum at the napoleonic wars.net or just on social media so twitter using the hashtag waterloo remembered so that we can all kind of come together in this conversation to remember the sacrifice of so many men during that campaign
3: well thank you very much zach white it's ambitious big waterloo anniversary plans so congratulations to you and your whole team and your network of historians so thank you for coming on the pod
4: it's been a pleasure thanks for having me
2: Thanks so much for listening, and if you want more, you can now subscribe to our brilliant Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Get cutting-edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week, every week, for free. Enjoy.
5: Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget?